recurve buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't even, oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. Uh. I just shot my Kentucky buck. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. I'm your host, Chris Leppert, and tonight I'm co-hosted with Josh Luck. Josh, how you doing? Doing pretty good. I am not the third wheel this evening. Yep. So, so that's pretty nice. Rick's probably passed out. He <laughs> has enjoyed, he's going to kill me. He's enjoyed opening day. Uh, we're a baseball town. This is like an annual. Yeah, he goes every year, doesn't he, for opening day? Yeah, yeah. he's a big Reds guy. Baseball's a a big deal here thank god we got joe burrow so i can watch something interesting <laughs> <laughs> so tonight enough about the reds tonight we are joined by a couple of special guys um we've not yet had them on here and we're pretty excited about it we have the gentleman from the southern outdoorsman podcast andrew maxwell and jacob god i'm having a brain fart right now jacob myers oh my god i almost called you jacob emery how you go? How you doing, guys? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, guys. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. Dude, you call me Jacob Emery. If I start killing deer like Jacob Emery, dude, I'll be <laughs> yeah, for real. Man, you aren't kidding. That guy's he he takes no prisoners. No. So I don't. What is it with the name Jacob? There's like ten different Jacobs I can think of that are all involved in the hunting industry in some way or another. Literally, Jacob Myers. You got Jacob Emery. Jacob Bush, Jake Belinda. There's probably a bunch of others I'm forgetting. <laughs> you got to be careful. Some of those guys might not be a Jacob. We don't know. It's true. It could, be, <laughs> could just be Jake. I'm going to get a text from Jake Bush like, tell that idiot my name's not Jacob. <laughs> 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 no, he wouldn't say that. Um, so tonight we're going to talk turkeys. Uh, we've been kind of on a turkey campaign, if you will. The last few weeks, um, seasons are coming in in the south, and uh, things are starting to fire up for them a little bit. And here in a couple weeks, we've got Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, us Midwestern corn-fed people are going to finally get to chase these things. So um, we figured we'd kick when, around the, the turkey talk a little bit. When when this releases, I think Kentucky's youth, you, yeah, Kentucky's youth season will have taken place. It's this weekend, I believe. Yeah. Yep, yeah. you are correct, sir. We're going to go down there and screw up some youth hunters marking birds. <laughs> There's not going to be any little kids where we are. Yeah. Um, so, Jacob, Andrew, tell us a little bit, uh, you know, first about your your hunting history, your background with hunting turkeys, how you got into it, and uh, then maybe we'll go over some setups and stuff. So, I... I didn't actually grow up uh, turkey hunting like a lot of people. So I, when we grew up, we were mainly squirrel hunters uh, and deer hunters. We were small game. And then and then we kind of got into the deer stuff. Uh, my dad was a CPA. And that, so it's tax season right now, you know, turkey season. And so we never really got to turkey hunt. Um, and he, he turkey hunted a little bit towards the end of his life. Um, and he, he kind of started getting into it. And that got me interested in it. Uh, and then after he passed away, he passed away when I was a teenager. 
when he passed away, uh, those next couple of years, I became more interested in turkeys just because it was another thing to do, you know, another thing to, to kind of occupy my time out in the woods. Um, and so I kind of started hitting up some local wildlife management areas. Uh, I had a family friend who had some property and we'd go out there and hunt and we just didn't kill anything for years. <laughs> it was so hard, man. One time in spring break, it was me and my buddy Colton. We we called it the turkey scourge. And it was like six days of us just like <laughs> not even coming close to killing it. It was it was the most ragtag, horrible. Like we didn't know what we were doing. And uh over the years, I, I never had that person that was like a really good turkey hunter that to take me. So I kind of learned literally everything the hard way. And so it was like four or five years of just like grinding and like with like almost no progress. Uh, and then I, I was lucky to have the opportunity to meet some good turkey hunters and go on a couple turkey hunts with those guys, as well as, you know, eventually down the line, starting the podcast too, and being able to interview a bunch of good turkey hunters. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of, I started learning a lot more in a shorter amount of time and actually started killing some turkeys on, on public and private land. So uh, it's been like a long progression for me, you know, in, in the turkey woods, but um I feel like I feel like uh, I've learned a lot from that, though. I'm, I'm almost kind of glad that I got into turkey hunting the way I did and got into it later because uh, I kind of had a, a real blank slate to work with. You know, unlike with deer hunting, where I, I had with deer hunting, I had a bunch of bad habits that I had to unlearn. But with turkey hunting, you know, I just kind of got to figure it out as I went with some really good turkey hunters. So that, that's kind of my upbringing in the turkey woods. And Jacob's a little bit different. Yeah. So mine. I, I like Andrew didn't grow up in a, a family who turkey hunted by no means. I, I got into hunting through my uncles, uh, which my, my mom's two brothers and their version of turkey hunting was deer hunting turkeys. And what I mean by that is they, they would use trail cameras or they'd see where turkeys are at on a food plot. They would pop up a blind or sit up against a tree and soft call every now and then with a cheap foam decoy. Okay. That literally like, now looking back at those decoys, I found one of those old decoys probably a few years ago and threw it away. And I'm like, I can't imagine how these things ever worked. Like how terrible. <laughs> um, and hunted with those guys a couple times uh, growing up, like in, mostly in high school, turkey hunting. And, um, you know, both of them have had very moderate success turkey hunting. And they, they, now they both really don't turkey hunt anymore. Uh, but we never had success. We had a couple of close encounters. But in high school, I got my first vest and shotgun. And uh, actually went to kind of a funny background. So I went to a college preparatory boarding school in Arkansas, but 2,500 acres, and we could hunt all that property. Um, so we could actually have shotguns, muzzlers. We couldn't have centerfire rifles, but we have uh, 22s there. And we would literally go get our gun from the safe, get had a guy down there that, you know, give us our gun, and we'd walk to wherever we were going to go hunting. And uh, I turkey hunted, quote unquote, up there a little bit. And the only thing I ever killed was coyotes because I could squeal on a mouth call. They start howling. And I'd squeal on a mouth call and call coyotes and shoot them with a shotgun. Um, when I got into college, it was something I dabbled with, but again, had very little success. And really, it wasn't a big passion of mine. I love springtime fishing. And it wasn't until I met Andrew uh, probably, I don't know, six, almost six years ago now, um, almost seven years ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um he was like, hey, dude, let's go turkey. And I started going with him and having like crazy experiences. I only had heard turkeys gobble a few times ever like, up to that point. And we had a couple good public land hunts, and he got to watch me over a few years miss an absolute ton of turkeys with a shotgun. Uh, you know, being very impatient, misjudging distance, especially on a string uh, uh, gobbler, 
you know, getting way too worked up in the situation, looking over the top of the barrel, the whole nine yards, I've done it. And, uh, and I finally was able to kill my first turkey on some public land in North Carolina with a buddy of mine uh, back in 2018. Um, and it's been something that's been interesting kind of seeing like the struggle because I'm, I still struggle. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a successful turkey hunter. Okay. Very limited success. And it's one of those things that, you know, I look like the guys like Andrew go hunt with him and he's picking up on things that I don't even think about. Like, you know, we brought up and we might talk about this in the episode, you know, I'll see some woods. I'm like, dude, these woods are way too open. Like the turkeys are going to see you. And I was like, well, you got to use topography and terrain to hide yourself to bring that gobble over the top of the ridge instead of sitting on the side of the ridge where, you know, he's down below you, he can see from 80 yards away or hundred yards away. And uh, it's stuff like that. That's kind of clicked more and more over the last few years. Uh, and it's been kind of interesting kind of see that because again, really, I haven't taken Turkey hunting seriously other than a few years ago. Then there's a little hiatus and now like jumping back in it real seriously, kind of going into this year. Uh, Cause last year was absolutely just terrible for me. I really didn't go much at all. I, you know, actually went fishing a decent amount. Um, but the thing about turkey hunting, especially when you're not growing up in like a turkey hunting family, or like have that culture. It's interesting when you meet people that grew up like that, that grew up turkey hunting from a young age. They had dads, you know, their dad, their their granddad, their uncles, all of them like hardcore turkey hunters. And you see that a lot in the southeast. So it's kind of interesting when you see two guys like myself and Andrew who didn't grow up like that and kind of got into it later on in life. Yeah. Yeah. That- I I can relate to both of you guys. I'm I'm a late bloomer when it comes to turkey hunting. Uh, I killed a Jake, and I didn't really turkey hunt until I got into high school. And uh, my it was my girlfriend at the time. Her family were a bunch of hunters. I actually went out with her grandfather, and I killed a Jake. Um, I think other than that, I might have killed one other Jake towards the end of high school. But I was always in in school. So the springtime, I was always busy with exams and stuff. So it wasn't until the past few years meeting Chris and some of the other guys that I started taking turkey hunting a little bit more serious. And like you said, Andrew, it's kind of nice starting a little bit older. You kind of start with that blank slate, unlike deer hunting, right? I've been hunting with my father since I was like 11. Um, So it's kind of nice starting with that blank slate and learning from guys that really know what they're doing and, and trying to apply those skills. I'm, I'm no, like I, I'm no skilled turkey hunter. I, I'm working on it. I, I didn't kill my first time until last year. So, but I relate a lot to both of you. Yeah. The, the foam decoys hit me in my soul. <laughs> it's got like the gigantic seam going all the way oh. over the top. <laughs> and yes. It makes them legitimately look like one of those weird dinosaurs. Um, I never, I never saw a turkey come into those as a young man. I didn't kill my first turkey off decoys until I was 27, 20, 27 or 28 years old. Uh, they were all kind of without the – I'd just be like, well, these things aren't going to work anyway and just leave the decoy staked in the ground because the turkey wasn't going to come anyway, and I'd go chase and then kill the bird. But the other thing that really hit home is when you talk about sitting on the ridge top or just over the other side and making him come up. That's the most stressful thing because if he doesn't see what he likes, they never just, Oh, I'm just going to strut up over the, the hillside. Now they, they always just pop their head up and survey. And so many times 
I've had to jump up and kind of run one down and shoot him basically because he's popped his head up. Now, I'm not a turkey caller or a turkey hunter. I, I prefer the term turkey killer. We we go in there to come out with a bird. So when he when you're on one of those skinny ridges and he pops up, you know, 20 yards, 15 yards away and sees you or doesn't see a hen or whatever it is, and then he just ducks his head back down, you know, it's all you ever saw. You just stand up and take a few steps, and this is for not coming in, you, you arrogant little – <laughs> sleep. So anyway, that's that's very interesting. So you guys are both in Alabama, right? Yep. Yeah, both central Alabama. We both live in the Birmingham area. In in Alabama, where at one time you guys had what, like a five bird limit? And yeah, they cut it back last year to four birds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. We have, we have a, we cut down to a one bird limit last year and I'm so glad. I, I hope a bunch of states follow. I, I would assume if you guys did like a two bird, you'd be flourishing. I don't know what it would be about. What, what is it about Alabama that creates such a huge turkey population? Because you definitely have more turkey hunters than in Ohio. So, I mean, do you guys just have a lot of good habitat you think for the nesting or yeah uh i think that's what it is like the whole state i mean alabama not literally all of it but alabama is kind of a tree farm you know uh we got a lot of upland hardwoods but we got a lot of pines too and maybe not so much the larger timber companies but well actually i take that back back in the day like back in the 80s 90s early 2000s a lot of timber companies would manage with fire uh, and so it created really good turkey habitat. And so okay. that's, you know, that's when kind of the heyday was, according to a lot of people who, uh, you know, they were hunting in the 90s and like the boom of turkey hunting. And uh, and there was a lot, like a lot more birds back then. And it was a lot easier for a lot of people. Now, there are other people in the state, though, and this is kind of interesting, who will be like, well, I haven't noticed any decline in turkeys. And a lot of those guys hunt national forest and they burn the piss out of national forest in Alabama. I mean, they'll burn a thousand acres at a time in the national forest in Alabama. Uh, and, and some people get upset about that. Um, and that's like a whole nother discussion, but I, I, that that's definitely what it is. I, there's just so much suitable habitat, like pretty much, I mean, most properties have turkeys, you know, if you join a hunting club in the South, like unless just cutovers, like you're probably going to have some turkeys. You might not have a ton, but there's some there. Wow. That's just so, it, it's probably like talking to people in the South about the big Midwest deer. Like we don't, I can tell you most of the properties that I hunt don't have turkeys on it at all at any time of the year, let alone a sustainable population that you can hunt in the springtime. Um, now, I'm referring to private land farms. Public land's a whole different story, but a lot of the larger tracks that we have, you know, just just hearing gobbles is exciting. Um, if you get on birds, you're pretty jacked. There's a few as you head east away from people. Um, you know, it gets better, obviously, uh, as does anything, right? But anywhere close to me, those birds, I mean, the same 10 birds get hammered every single day and then 
a couple will get killed or whatever, and then the other ones become geniuses and probably die of old age <laughs> or coming out. Um, so, wow. So what what um, what kind of calls do you guys use when you're turkey hunting? Yeah, I, I use a little bit of everything. I like mouth calls. I'm really partial to mouth calls just because they're they're fun. I kind of like to use a mouth call. Um, and I can do a lot. I can actually do a lot more on a mouth call than I can on a friction call. Like I know guys who can kiki and stuff on a pot call. I can't do that. I can kiki and I can purr. Well, I can kind of purr on a on a mouth call. I can cluck. Yeah, you know, I can do all the things I, I want to do on a mouth call. But I, I carry friction calls with me. Like I'll carry a pot call just to get really loud, uh, or just to get a different sound. And then for a while, I didn't even carry a box call just because for whatever reason, I'm not crazy about box calls. But then I actually started at one point gobbling at turkeys with a box call and had some luck with that. So then I started carrying a box call. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, hey, man, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Gobbling at turkeys and and specifically with a mouth call, doing a Jake Yelp, because I can't Jake Yelp that good on friction calls. Again, you can do it on friction but I'm just better at doing it with a mouth call and the Jake help has been very good to me over the years. So that's one reason that I like, I just prefer a mouth call. I wonder what it is about that. I wonder if it's just something that they don't hear often. It's, it's uh, from people or if there's a little more to that, maybe that is interesting. I think it's a little bit of both. I am not good with a mouth call <laughs> for, for the life of me i need to start getting into practicing more man i can't i can't purr to save my life well i think i'm at a high disadvantage i can't so the uvula in the back of the mouth where people are like oh you just gurgle that thing and i'm like man my state it stays still it does not move i cannot make a purr i can I can do a few other things and sound okay, but man, I'm just, I can't roll my R's. I'm just at a disadvantage. My mouth was like stiff or something. I don't know. You ever seen one of these? No. What is that? That is a nail call. A nail call? A nail call. It is legitimately just a box, you know, a, a piece of wood hollowed out on the bottom with a horseshoe nail driven into it and you literally i you i'm probably going to get a divorce over this i took one of our wedding coasters no. <laughs> it's a stone a stony coaster and it has the most control that i've ever experienced from a friction call um it's pretty slick i started using it last year and it it paid dividends. I, <laughs> I think we were like 15 minutes into our Ohio season and I was tagged out. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, that all right. So then we went, killed a couple birds. Uh, one of the birds I called in in Kentucky, the other one Pierce called in. But uh had some other call-ins for buddies and stuff. It was it's pretty slick. It works. I think it's just one of those things where you can you can get a lot closer to a mouth call the control you have with the mouth call, um, then I feel like a lot of people can on a, a pot call or box call or push button or something. So, and yeah. I'm the only person I know that has one 
like within a thousand miles. I don't know anybody that uses one. Yeah. Yeah, man. People overthink turkey calls too, because like, it's such a cliche, but people were like, well, if you hear a real hen, she doesn't sound good. She couldn't win a competition. But I mean, dude, it's kind of true. I mean, I, like I go to the grand nationals, uh, every chance I get in, in, uh, in Nashville at the NWTF convention where like the best turkey callers in the world are up there, you know, running mouth calls and what they sound like. And like, I hear hens that sound like that. Like, I don't literally think that a hen would win a calling contest. I think she would, but you also hear a lot of hens that are like, a, like that nasty, like rasp, like one tone yelp, like not a two tone yelp at all. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I worked for years to get like a beautiful two tone yelp on a mouth call and I can, do it i can't do it like those guys can but i can do a nice two-tone yelp and i've had a lot more luck with like the ugly raspy one note just crappy yelps man yeah and, and same thing with the jake yelp because the jake yelp isn't anything special uh yeah I mean, it's just pow, 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 you know that kind yeah. of thing on a ball and uh, i've had a lot of luck with that and like jacob he's not very confident with a mouth call he's like he does he doesn't use them a lot but he got some the other day, and he's like, T just tell me if I'm doing a Jake Yelp. And he just nailed a Jake Yelp. I'm like, dude, you go kill a turkey right now with that. Like, it sounded great, you know. And and I don't know how much you've been practicing or whatever, but it sounded really good for a Jake Yelp. It did. Yeah, I think a lot of turkey calling has more to do with kind of knowing what to say and when to say it and when to shut up. Also, obviously, your positioning is – the gospel of the Lord. You, I mean, if you're sitting, if he's gobbling up top and you're down in a creek bottom or something, I mean, good luck. Um, not saying it won't happen, but, you know, not optimal. More than likely going to stand up there strutting and gobbling, waiting on you. But it, it seems like being a, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to cut a gobbler off mid-gobble. When he's gobbling, cut him off with an excited yelp, and that seems to really do well. And I think a lot of it um, is, you know, that ex excited uh, sound you're making, like, oh, man, she's hot for me. You know, I'm going to go over there or whatever. So uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'll ever really know, but that's just a theory, I guess. But then you just like – go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, no, I agree I've, <clears throat> with what you were saying, Chris. I've, I mean, I've witnessed Pierce cut off a gobbler, like mid-gobble, and man, it's just like in high school when you're texting that girl that you like and she responds, you're like, oh, shit, like, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, exactly that. And, you know, it's funny, though, because a guy like our buddy Pierce, this will be my, my, uh, my my podcast Pierce buildup. Uh, I do it. Get tired of us. We, yep. we talk, yeah, every time I talk about turkey hunting, we talk about Pierce because he's just such a good caller. But um, he actually did call two gobblers like last weekend a season, public land, pressured land. Called two gobblers right down a hill. Like I was headed up the hill to try to make a move on them, and wouldn't you know it, I hear him gobbling down there by him in the creek bottom and i thought well that's you know you think you know and then they teach you that you don't and of course pierce is down there filming them in the creek walking around gobbling and everything I'm like jeez oh pete so Dude, that's 
that's actually an interesting subject. So, uh, like, there was this one turkey when I was in college um, that I set up on, and I, I'd, I'd gone out hunting, and it's like a big, long creek drainage, and this is in South Alabama, so it's just very, very thick woods, very thick creek bottoms, and like very gentle hills. Uh, there's hills there, but they're not very big hills. Well, I had this one bird that gobbled like a hundred times uh, on this uh, public land I was hunting. And I made all kinds of moves on him and I couldn't kill him. But that same morning, way up the valley from me, there was another turkey that gobbled like twice that whole morning. And, uh, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I bet that's the big giant turkey. Like, I bet that's the big hook spurred, you know, beard dragon, like old bird. And uh, I went out like two weeks later. And I kind of got more towards the head of the valley where that bird was. And um, I actually ended up getting almost down on the creek because the woods were so thick that I kind of had to get down on the creek, like to to get to an opening where I just wanted to listen. And we just set up and there weren't goblin that morning. It was me and a friend of mine. And I got out a pot call and I clucked on it like three times. This is like right at, uh, right as it's starting to get daylight. And I cluck on it three times and this bird hammers it like, I don't know, 80 yards to my left oh. and he's, he's still in the tree. And he just, I mean, just soft clucks. And like two weeks before some, someone we had been talking to was like, Hey, if that happens, take your call and throw it where you can't reach it. Like don't call to him anymore. And so I literally threw my call away so I couldn't reach <laughs> it. And we set up and we heard him fly down like 10 or 15 minutes later, heard the wings slap the limb. Uh, and then maybe, 20 minutes after that he came strutting in and i shot him and i looked back at that and he came straight down the creek bottom like he was walking down the bottom and i it's kind of funny because we talk so much about terrain now and like positioning on turkeys and i'm like if i had been in that same exact situation like yesterday i think if he would if he would have gobbled or whatever i'd have been like oh my gosh how can i reposition on this turkey because i overthink it now with yeah the terrain stuff and sometimes it is like reading that bird and it's like, if he's hot enough, he's going to come to you. Like he will fly across that Creek or he will fly over that fence or he will do something he's not really supposed to do. You just got to be able to read that situation. And we had an example actually yesterday where we probably should have done something different where I was telling you guys that there was a Turkey. It was a quiet morning, just like what I was mentioning about that hunt a couple of years ago. And one Turkey gobbled a couple times and he was, he sounded like he was kind of far off and we knew where he was and we tried to sneak in there and get like right on top of him. We ended up bumping him looking back. I'm like, you know what? I wish that we had kind of stayed where we were and made some calls over at him or maybe set up just further away and gave him some space and just, and just saw what he did. Try to fire him up with something and get him to come to us and not be so focused on like, I have to reposition. I have to get in his bubble or whatever. Yeah. I agree. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I also, it's always interesting to me, the little things you can do with the fly down, like when they're still on the limb, you know, when you're legit roost hunting the bird, you didn't strike him, you know, at 1030 in the morning. Normally you strike them, you're probably going to get an opportunity at that time of day, just because, I mean, as we know, the hens are probably on the nest or there's a lot fewer of them anyway. And uh, as long as, as you can get to where you need to be and beat the hen to him, I guess um, that, that can really wreck your day. But it's been interesting to learn the past few years 
<clears throat> about the little tactics you can use to entice them while they're on the limb. Like as you kind of, you know, we call it climbing the ladder, starting off really soft and then just bumping it up and then that excited, loud fly down cackle. And then oftentimes we'll barely call and there'll be a lot more scratching in the leaves and stuff like that. And they, if you can basically, it, it's almost like you, you've got the bird roosted and he's at, you know, pitch one or pitch two, and then you really make him climb the ladder with you and get him excited. And uh, you can pretty much read him to the point where if he's gobbling his butt off on the limb, he's probably you can probably pretty much shut up and just sit there and scratch leaves, and he's going to come in and check you out. Yeah. One Go time on. we had – a hunt uh, me and Jacob did on a WMA like that where we knew where some were roosted and we actually went in and got within like 120-ish yards of, of where they were and we set up kind of where we wanted to be and it was an area that just gets hammered I mean like a lot of we first of all we hunted the crap out of it but some other people hunted the crap out of it too like these birds are really pressured and uh, we went in there before daylight way before daylight and when it got to fly down time we didn't make any calls or anything we took our hats off and just did the the wing beats and they gobbled at it and they ended up coming in. It was three strutters came in and Jacob missed one of them. <laughs> <laughs> no. How yeah. far? Well, first off, I was so green. This is like the first time I was actually like turkey hunting, like legit turkey hunting. Gobbler's coming up and he's 35, maybe 40 yards from me. And Andrew's not sitting on the same tree. He, Andrew's like, you know, maybe five yards from my left, like a couple trees down. And instead of shooting the freaking turkey in the head, I, again, super green at the time, looked over at him. I was like, there's a turkey right there. And I just whispered and pointed. And that turkey went, boop. And he, like, went back through that thick stuff. And, like, it was gone. And the next thing he knows, those three gobblers were up to our farther down uh, the drainage to our right, strutting back and forth on the hillside. And uh, a severely misjudged range. And uh, probably didn't even touch him with a pellet. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it's actually quite interesting how many people will move on a bird thinking, and I always think back to myself, and I'm not, I'm not trying to dig at you here, Jacob, but I always find it interesting that when people move, I think to myself, did, would you not be able to see somebody if they were sitting there? Like, it's not like we're wearing an invisible cloak because we have camo on or something. So yeah. it's always interesting when people move and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> He's trying to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like we just went on a hunt with a, a buddy of ours, and he's like, it's the first time he's ever been turkey hunting, like ever. Like, oh. and, you know, it was one of those things like I was the cameraman, Andrew was calling with one gun and he hit the same had the other gun. And like, kind of seeing the reaction of everything, it's interesting. Like, that's the first time I've been on watch, like, again, brand new hunter, never been in the turkey woods before, ever see how they acted. He did a pretty good job, but there's sometimes, you know, he's mic'd up and I can hear him in my headset moving. And I'd like, just look over my eyes and, you know, he's like readjusting stuff like that. And it's like, you learn that after a little bit of experience, but like, he didn't realize like how good Turkey's eyes are. And again, back then when that happened to me, I didn't realize how good a Turkey's eyes are, even over yeah. there. And because it's like, the thing is like deer, like deer's got pretty good vision, but like you can still get away with some movement with a deer that you cannot oh, wow. get away with, with a Turkey. Um, yeah. And it was kind of interesting kind of watching him and like making all these little things and like readjusting stuff like we were calling, <laughs> working a bird. 
And it's like, okay, so like that's what I probably looked like back then, if not worse. Probably. Oh yeah, it's like yeah. talking to them. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like you literally can't move, so, yeah, like at all. Like you don't move your head. You don't you don't move your head left and right. You, know, you use your eyes. Like look as far to the far as left as you can, and look as far to the right as you can without moving your head. That's that's all you can see. So, mm-hmm. amen to that. I remember. You learn, you learn. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of turkey hunting too, especially with the run and gun public land, like things just aren't going to happen the way you see on TV all the time where he comes strutting in and he looks so stupid and is just waiting for you to pop his head. Right. Like they come in wigged out as hell sometimes. And that could be because they're pressured or, you know, he's had his ass beat by Jake's all, all spring and doesn't even want to gobble or whatever. But, I can remember one specific time I took a guy, he hadn't killed a bird. Uh, he, he hadn't killed a Tom and I had never turkey hunted public land, but the idea of no property lines was like the coolest thing to me. So I was like, let's, you know, let's go. So he takes me out. We strike a bird, you know, on the roost, no dice, move on, strike another bird, move on, strike another bird. And we just kind of kept walking we get up on a skinny, skinny ridge, and we're finding morels. So I thought, why don't I just, before we walk around picking these mushrooms, why don't I just check real quick? So I let out what these guys call the nasty. I do like a natural crow call. So I crow called, and like 80 yards below us, we hear one gobble right away, and I'm like, ooh, you're probably dead. Uh, this is public land. I've never done this before, but so I let out a few natural yelps and we lit. I mean, I think the ridge was like 15 yards wide. Maybe it was very skinny up top. So we had a tree, you know, maybe 10 inches in diameter and we just both sat next to each other. We never took a step. We just slid down the tree together, sat down. I made one series of yelps and that Turkey, I think it was like four minutes and 27 seconds or something. He made made his way up the hill, um, and he did like I was talking about. He popped his head up and then started to come, and the dude, I mean, this turkey's, he's sub 20 yards, and I hear the guy say, oh, my God, just like that. And I'm like, what are you, like, why are we not shooting this bird? Why is this bird alive? You know, you're right next to me. And then the turkey I don't know if he spotted us, if the dude moved, or if he heard him whisper or whatever. Man, he bugged out, and and I literally screamed at him. I was like, you better shoot him now. And he stood up and did exactly what I said. You know, he ran over the hill a couple steps and, and rolled him, which ended up on public land, inch and a half spurs, 22 and a half pounds. I'm like, are you kidding me? And I'm looks <laughs> like that. And this is your first time. What and oh my god, you gotta be kidding me. So, but uh yeah, the hunting pressure birds can be tough. Um, what would you guys what would you guys recommend to people hunting public land as far as beginners go? Like where where would you tell them to start to try to find success? What tips would you give? to a beginning guy that's trying to go kill a Tom? Man, 
Probably the first thing I would say is is just like go as often as you can. I mean, that's probably the most important thing is like if you're if you're not going to go out there and try, like you're never going to get like you could listen to every podcast, listen to every book, go talk to every great hunter, watch every video. Uh, and you're just never going to get any better unless you actually go and, and put effort in, you know. Um, so so you got to go out there and, and just like scare a bunch of tur- turkeys, basically. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. You're just going to have to go mm-hmm. and get lunch. But I mean, as far as figuring out where to go look, I mean, what I look for is if I'm trying to like pick a place to go, I'm looking for upland hardwoods, first of all, like down here in the south, or uh, I say in the south, down in central Alabama, uh, if you're hunting like public or a lot of hunting clubs, that's actually kind of rare. It's usually planted pines. Um, And planted pines can be great, but I'm looking for some kind of hardwood aspect to it. So, like, I want upland hardwoods, if possible, which is basically where hardwoods exist on hilltops. That's the easiest way to put it. Um, If I can find that, then then I'm in really good shape. And I just want to get on a high spot above all that stuff where I can listen for a really long ways. Uh, and then the second thing I would say to do is, is don't go tearing off after the very first bird that you hear gobble the first time, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot more out of it. If you just sit there, kind of let the morning wake up. And, you know, if you hear a bird gobble at, at 640 AM, which is like kind of gray light for us, uh, you know, don't go tearing off after maybe stand there till like 715 and just really let the morning progress and just, and don't be so focused on, on locate locate calls like don't be up there crowing and howling every chance you get like just listen and like let the woods wake up before you try to force something into happen and uh and you're gonna you're gonna learn more faster doing that than if you're up there and he gobbles two times and then you get impatient and you start owling at him you know and then and then you start tearing down there after him and then all of a sudden now there's a turkey gobbling over here and you know it just gets hectic so kind of let the morning wake up and and go as often as you can. Those are my two things. Yeah. And, and slow down. Slow down. When there's so many times in the past, and it's happened already this year, that, like, you get so worked up after some birds, and you're running by other turkeys that you don't realize are there until after you're trying to step on another bird, and then one gobbles 150 yards from your truck. So, <laughs> like, that's it's something to pay attention, like Andrew said, is, like, wait a little bit. Like, the turkey's not going anywhere. Like, as long as there's not, like, seven other guys trying to chase after the turkey, if you have a little spot to yourself, sit and wait a little bit. Don't worry about right at gray light, the turkey starts gobbling and running on. Because it's happened to us multiple times. You do that, and next thing you know, at 7.30, which, again, we're in central time zone, not eastern time zone, but, you know, it'd be 7.30, 8 o'clock, and there's a turkey gobbling within sight of my truck that if I would have held back, it might have been a, a more killable turkey because he's being more vocal now getting a little bit early or later in the morning versus one turkey that was gobbling heavy on the roost, but now he's shut up because he's got hens with him. He's not doing anything. Yo, dude. And Hey, I'll tell you another thing that he, that he just said, uh, we've interviewed a couple times, uh, Mike Pentecost who's the owner of Woodhaven custom calls. And that dude is a bona fide Turkey killer. I mean, he, he's a woodsman. Uh, he can explain it really well. But one thing that he said that is so true that took me a really long time to figure out is, when you hear a turkey like on a ridge point gobbling at daylight or gobbling at like 7.30 in the morning and you're like all frantic trying to figure out how to get over there really quickly, a lot of times like he's just going to stay like right there. Like you hear you hear a turkey in that spot at like 7 a.m. 
and you don't swing back around to that spot to like nine nine thirty. A lot of times that turkey is right there, like he didn't move, and uh, and so there it's not like they hit the ground and just like take off and walk three miles. Some of them do that for sure, but a lot of them don't. I mean, they kind of just float around and hang out in a small area mm-hmm. and, they, and they don't move as far as you think they would. So, yeah. so you don't have to be in like a giant rush to go crashing in there, killing the thing. If you're, if you follow along with Dr. Michael Chamberlain, which I highly recommend on Instagram or Facebook, when he shows GPS collar or GPS data from turkeys, the gobblers that have been, uh, have trackers on. If you watch every now and then, like one of those turkeys will make like a pretty big like circle or like, you know, range. A lot of them don't, though, and that's the thing is if you don't want that turkey, like Andrew's saying, he's going to be in that general area. He's going to be within calling distance and hearing distance of you. If you get within that two, 300 yards of where he was gobbling at the roost, it's not like they're just there. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, we're talking about hunting Easterns here. A lot of people think, like, if you start hunting, you know, if you start seeing guys hunting Rios or Miriams, so those turkeys like to cover a lot of ground. You know, you're yeah. talking area, a lot of wide open cut terrain. They're covering, like, some of those turkeys may legitimately cover miles in a day. Where Easterns aren't going to typically do that. Like they're going to cover three, four, five hundred yards in a general area, you know, especially if they have hens close by. Like they're not leaving that little area that left that they spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in. So it's like one thing that we, and actually, we just, I literally just learned this. And it's kind of hilarious. I'm just not thinking about it. But literally, like a week ago from a guy we interviewed, was he likes to sit back and actually take inventory. When a, when a bird starts gobbling, he pulls up his, his, uh, his uh, mapping software and he starts dropping pins of where that, that, that turkey's gobbling at, especially if he's in hill country and you can figure out what potential point that turkey's on, he'll drop a pin on it and just sit, and he'll mark every turkey he hears that morning and then look at, like, okay, which one looks more killable based off not only their vocalization, like how much they're actually gobbling when they get on the ground, but also which location topography-wise sets up the best for me to get close to him and set up in a killable location using topography to kill him. And he has a tremendous amount of success, but also – he used it as historical roosting spots. So he he has all these pins on there that he puts details on. And year over year, he's finding turkeys roosting the exact same spots. And he understands how to hunt those locations after he spends more and more time there. So for a new turkey hunter, that's awesome. Again, don't necessarily blow your wad right off the bat and just go chase turkey. Mm. Drop pins on where you think that turkey's located at based off how far you think he is when you hear him and on your maps. And slowly build that data not only this this year, but for years to come to figure out if you're going to hone in on one location, figure out how and where these turkeys like to roost. And then also, after you spend more time there hunting and scouting, you kind of know which location says the best for you to slip in there, get behind one of those ridges and call him over the top or call him up one of those ridges to give you the best opportunity. Man. Josh, that's, I know you're thinking what I'm thinking right now. So turkeys That's are juicy information. So <laughs> you hub hunt gobblers. And now we bed hunt gobblers. We're not doing anything different. <laughs> oh, I, I had another thought along those lines. They're they're also like deer during the rut, right? They're around these hens, right? They're in the breeding season. Some of them will make these long excursions, just like bucks do, right? But you have other ones just hanging around the doe bedding, right? The hen bedding. <laughs> they're just small deer. So Josh and I are literally headed to Kentucky in the hills the 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 foothills of the appalachians if you will not this upcoming but next weekend to mark birds and that is um i was excited before now i'm pretty damn stoked because i feel like feel like we just had the juice on the podcast Mm -hmm. there that was the juice (laughs) right there 
That is, that's good stuff. My God. All right. Well, see, that's something that, again, I hadn't thought about in that kind of detail until like recently when we interviewed that guy who's a Matt Ryan. He's a vet, he's a veterinarian out in Mississippi, hardcore publicly turkey hunter. But he's like, dude, unless you like go hunt a bunch of different states every year and you're not hunting the same location, it's stupid not to mark where each bird is roosting when he's gobbling on the roost and take notes of that and then kind of analyze it because that's the spot maybe you go scout a little postseason, you go scout during season while you're hunting those areas, you scout a little bit preseason next year, and you kind of figure out how those turkeys use them. Because one thing he told he told us is there are some ridge points, and he gave us an example, there's some ridge points that will have that dominant gobbler on every single year. If he gets killed, the next one's moving into that exact same spot every single year now, on public land. And it's like, if you can figure that out, and this is something I'm trying to do for this year. So, again, I'm not talking from personal experience. This is what I just learned, and it really clicked for us because I'm like, now looking back when we heard eight gobblers, you know, you know, hammering off opening morning in Alabama on Andrew's Club, kind of pissed we didn't start dropping points everywhere. I kind of know where there's some of them right because <laughs> we got on a few of them. But it's like you start building that data and you kind of know where those like roost trees are at because especially if you're in an area where there's a ton of tree options, they're not just going to roost every tree. They're going to roost in certain areas and certain trees based off topography, based off how they can get into those trees. And it's like, there's a pattern there. And if you figure that pattern out, then you kind of understand how you need to hunt that location. And some spots may just be better ambush spots for you to get into cleanly and not being seen versus others. Like there might be a root spot. There's a turkey on every single morning, but there's no way to get in, to get in within 200 yards of them because the woods are wide open and there's no way to get close to them. And there might be another spot. There's some kind of little thicket blown down trees, something that allows you to get in a little bit tired to them have a place that you can quote unquote hide the hen and then he's got to come and find you. And when he comes to find you, he's within 40 yards of you. This was worth it. <laughs> I'm so excited. Gentlemen, that was awesome. Uh, so we'll kind of move on a little bit um, with your guys' gun setups. You guys shoot TSS, right? Yep. Yep. You do nines? Yeah, I do nines. I've shot uh, sevens, and I've shot a blend of, like, sevens and nines before. Uh, but I just – I like the straight nines. That's, that's kind of what I shoot. Yeah. You do, you do the 18 or 15 or the the grant or grains per cc. You do the heaviest weight you can, or do you know? Yeah, I do the I, – I shoot the heaviest weight I can. I just want the most – payload that i can possibly get and not even because i'm like shooting birds really far for me it's actually uh it's it's shooting through stuff mm -hmm. so like i mentioned that like a lot of places we hunt are really thick and like i've shot at birds like through some like grass and stuff through some vines like just whatever the case may be like i, I want to be able to just like punch through something if i have to because usually i'm killing a bird at like like 20 to 30 yards um okay. And so, like, if there's something there, I just want to blast right through it, and I and I want enough pellets where I can kind of do that. Yeah, the way it, the way Andrew hunts, he could get away with 28 gauge and do perfectly fine. He's just using a 12 gauge because he's too cheap to buy another shotgun. Yeah, right now. One thing, one thing I learned too, and this is from one of our buddies, who's a really successful turkey hunter. It's kind of funny. He got he got put in a situation because his turkey gun is also his duck gun, and uh, he normally duck hunts. It, where how he hunts, he normally hunts with a modified choke, and that choke got rusted into that gun, and he's too cheap to go oh. buy another. 
he started shooting TSS and he actually really liked it because he's setting up the same way. He's not setting up to shoot the furthest. Like a lot of guys shooting TSS because they want to shoot far. Our mindset's a little bit different. It's like not necessarily shoot far. We just want a really dense pattern that you have a really good pattern density at close range and be able to punch through some stuff. And he has had tremendous success in his 12 gauge using that modified choke, which was rusted into his gun um, and shooting TSS and having an unbelievable pattern out to 45 yards. So, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, are you hunting field birds? Or are you going to be hunting birds in wide open timber? Or are you hunting birds where like you can get them in a little bit tighter and that's when you can kind of get away with not as tight of a choke and also even look at going to a smaller you know, shotgun, whether it's a, you know, go to a 20 gauge, I shoot a 20 gauge, or again, go to like a 28 gauge, which I know a lot of guys do. And if you're shooting birds within 40 mm-hmm. yards, you know, a 28 gauge with really not a super tight choke, you're going to have an unbelievable pattern in a super lightweight gun. Or you go to a 410 and get a crazy lightweight gun, whether it's one of those single shot Stevens shotguns or one of the little pump mags that are out there. And still have a gun that's plenty effective, but it, for us, especially like what Andrew's talking about, it's like having that payload that, like, if there's grass in the way, there's vines, um, you know, privet, this different kind of thick vegetation. And as long as you can identify, it's a long, it's a, it's a mature gobbler. It's not like a Jake. To be able to get everything into that bird that you need in order to kill that bird effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and that's like, because I mean, Andrew, that's him. I mean, he's not, he's got a 12 gauge. He could probably shoot 70 or 70 yards at a turkey. But it's not going to happen in our woods. I mean, if he's coming in, he's going to be sub 40 yards, nine, nine out of 10 times. Yeah, we were leaving the truck the other morning, and Jacob's like, are you bringing the rangefinder? I'm like, if I'm bringing the range, if I need the rangefinder, then I'm in the wrong spot. I don't need <laughs> I'm set up right. I don't need a rangefinder. Yep. You know, there's yeah. no doubt that turkey, what range is that, you know? Is it, it, uh, is it illegal to kill Jake's down there? Not in Alabama, it's not. Okay. In Mississippi, it is. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. another, another thing we've done with our shotgun, Andrew's been doing this for a couple of years, but I just got onto it this year. So an issue I've had in the past, and this is just like, listen, I don't necessarily, uh, how should I put this? <laughs> Target panic with white tails. I haven't really had much of an issue with it. For turkeys, I can shoot a shot. I can shoot a rifle really good. I feel like I can shoot a shotgun pretty good. The problem is, that turkey comes in, I start getting a little too antsy, and I'm I, a lot of times I'm looking over the barrel. I don't keep my my face real tight down to the gun, and uh, I've missed turkeys high a lot. I've like I've missed quite a few birds, like I like like ten plus birds. I don't know a lot of turkeys I missed. And one thing that also I've had issues with some shotguns will have a huge fiber optic front bead sight, especially if it's more like a waterfowl shotgun or like a up or like some kind of like a you know wing shooting shotgun. And I've used that in the past. I've had a couple of different ones that were like that. And if that turkey's past, he could be strutting. If he's past 25 yards, that bead is literally covering up three-fourths of the turkey. Like, you can't tell what you're aiming at. One thing Andrew did a couple of years ago, he switched to red dot sight. And I got to mess with mm-hmm. his gun a little bit. This is pretty sweet. And last couple of years, I kind of held off, and he's had it for a couple of years. This year, I bought one. I, I got a, a little Vortex Viper uh, or Vortex Venom on my shotgun with a uh, the Meadow Creek uh, mount, which yeah. actually – bolts it to the actual rib of your shotgun. Um, and it is amazing the sight picture you get with a red dot. And I know there's some guys in the Southeast that are die hard. Like I'm a traditional turkey hunter. I'm using a bead. I'm never going to use an optic. And I totally get that. But that red dot, it gives you such a good opportunity to be able to see like a very fine aim point, but also be able to see like peripheral around the turkey to yes. really make sure you have a clean shot opportunity. 
and there's not a tree in the way or a stump, whatever that could be in the way that a big fiber optic bead can kind of cover up, especially if the turkey's past 25, 30 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's giving me a lot more confidence going into this season because, I mean, we've patterned our guns. I feel so much more confident shooting the red dot because I can see the whole, you know, outline. I can see the whole picture, the whole target, everything at once versus shooting the bead where, like, the bead in the barrel is covering up half the target or half the bird, um, you know, in a traditional sense. So I, I'm very excited about switching over to that, and I would highly recommend that to everybody. It's worth the investment. Go buy you a good red dot, get you one of those, you know, uh, Meadow Creek mounts, or get you, you know, if your gun's already screwed and tapped, you know, put you a, a Picatinny rail like Andrew has on his gun. Whatever it is, try it, and I promise you, you'll feel a lot more comfortable Shooting in that sense, because again, just being able to see all the way around that turkey is really, really nice, especially in kind of you know high stress and you know high stress situations. A hundred percent, dude. So I was literally about to say, man, you're not you're not shooting a red dot like that's those reflex sights are money worth the investment. A hundred percent. The other thing, it's it's kind of funny to hear you mention the fiber optic sight covering up damn near the whole turkey knowing from my years in archery competitions that was something you fought you fought lighting all the time and what do we generally run into turkey hunting very bright sunlight that that makes that fiber optic it might as well be a paper plate on the end of your barrel um so that i was literally about to suggest that like dude dump that dump that bead go to a freaking reflex site i shoot the uh the Swamp Fox Kingslayer, mm-hmm. and it's been great. But, I mean, literally, like you said, anything. I mean, it helps you. If you keep that thing centered in there, you should be – and you're probably going to be money even if you don't because it's a shotgun and not a rifle. But if you center it up, you, you should be absolutely dead on. Um, the only thing that kind of turns me off a little bit about them, which I don't care, I'll just work around it, um, is sometimes when the sun hits them that you it's like holding the mirror up you know so you can you got to be really careful how you position yourself on a bird um, especially when that sun's rising you know first thing in the morning we've ran into that where the turkey just happened to be where we needed him not to be and then the sun's in your face and he comes in and you know he's like oh wow look at all the flashlights on the hillside pointing at me you know? <laughs> But um, gentlemen, this is uh, this has been fun. I I could talk about these things forever, but I don't want to keep you too long. Um, so I figure maybe we'll wrap this up. Uh, tell me what your favorite thing is that you've learned in the last year or so when it comes to hunting. Can be deer or turkeys or woodcocks. I know Andrew's a pretty big pretty big woodcock guy. So yeah, man. Jake, you want to go first? Yeah, so I'm going to take it. Uh, He's all fired up about well, this question. Well, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to – so I, I, have a, I can do a bunch of different answers, but I want to keep it turkey-related specifically for, like, the context of this podcast, which is if you're, again, worried about – unless you're hunting field turkeys, which is completely different, but if you're in a woods setting, especially with some kind of topography, like there's some elevation change, if you're worried about that turkey seeing you too far and hanging up, you're in the wrong spot, okay? So this is something – again – Andrew, God bless him, 
is a terrible teacher. Okay. <laughs> and I've hunted with him for years and he's never explained this to me until we just did a video, which I don't think has been published quite. Is it getting published this week? The one about the setup on the roof points? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so it's going to be published on the YouTube channel this week. Um, but is the whole idea about you should not be seeing down until a bottom. Cause I was telling Andrew, like, dude, these woods is upland hardwoods. Again, hardwoods up on the ridge, which is not super common to find down here in the deep south, at least where we're at in central Alabama. And I was talking about like, dude, you can see way down to these bobs where he's like, you shouldn't be able to see down the bobs. You need to back up further up that ridge point or over the other side. So you got to call him up and over or up that point. So he can't see until he's about 40, 45 yards or maybe even closer. And that's something I've struggled with in the past. I'm like, you know, you, you get a bird gobbling, he's on the next ridge point across from you, and you set up on the face of your ridge as facing his ridge, and you try to call him across the bottom. Well, he's going to hang up in the bottom because he can see where that call should be coming from up on your ridge point. And it's like getting further back, giving yourself a little bit more distance, get a little bit higher up or a little bit behind a brush pile, a down tree, something, so he can't see where you're at, and he truly has to come up and find you or even come down and find you but he can't be able to see where you're at from a distance. And that's something that, that, again, I've heard guys talk about it, but after like being in that situation where I told Andrew, I was like, dude, these woods are way too open. He's like, no, I love hunting these kind of woods because all you got to do is just back up another 10 yards where you can't see over the military crest. And that turkey has to come over the military crest on that ridge before he can see. And that's when you have your shot opportunity. And again, Chris, like you mentioned, maybe he kind of wigs out and starts going back down the hill. You just stand up, take a couple steps forward, and you can see down that point. And then you get your shot opportunity, you know, within, you know, 45 yards or so. So that is something I would, I, again, I'd recommend for people to pay attention to. And something that I'm really taking to heart going to this season specifically is, again, setting back a little bit further in order to get him to come up and over or around some kind of terrain or habitat feature in order to get him within that range so he cannot hang up and see you from a distance. And also, shut up with your calls. If he answers you and you he's all fired up, Play the like play the hard to get game. Shut up and just sit there and wait and stay quiet. Maybe scratch on the leaves a little bit, but don't call back at them and let that curiosity kill that turkey. And uh, I, again, it, it it absolutely works. So that that's something that again, something that's recently kind of hit me a little bit harder. And I would highly recommend for you know listeners to pay attention to that. Man, I'm so did this. My my thing. I'm gonna go a little <laughs> bit different direction. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh with deer. So. Probably the 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 my favorite thing I've learned this season, and and really just kind of like more fine tuning, uh, like a like a strategy, was we had an instance this year where I went and scouted an area two times before deer season came in, uh, and and found some scrapes in there, like some big community scrapes specifically, and put some cameras on them, and uh, like really watched those cameras religiously, like leading up to when we were going to hunt this area. And uh, was able to like really get a pulse on when the chasing was going to start, the actual chasing phase of the rut. So watching that scrape activity, um, like really ramp up and get pretty intense, and then stop, it just stopped one day. Um, and what it ended up being was we found like the first estrus doe that came in to heat in that area, and it was like, or maybe the first two, I don't know. But it was crazy. I mean, it was like four days of like rut action. Um, and so using that scrape is kind of an indicator. Uh, but not only that, but taking advantage of that very, very, very beginning first part of the rut. 
so for us in the south like that's kind of all over the map but for like midwestern guys it would be like i guess the a couple of days before halloween or something or like late october you know it's not mm-hmm. really the time of year when people are just you know really knocking them down yet like everything's going crazy but if you do find that first estrus dough like all hell breaks loose and we were able to do that twice this year and both yeah. times we killed bucks uh so like that that early rut time frame and like trying to trying to fine-tune how to key in on that and exactly when you need to be in the woods and finding that hot dough um that was like that was kind of a light bulb moment for me this this past season and it, and it worked out two different times so going into this season i'm like well how can i do that again mm. like how can i how can i take advantage of that again so uh that that's 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 my thing it was it was a good deer season man <laughs> i'm gonna yeah, come on well uh, sorry Go josh one thing, one thing i was gonna say it, it, uh, you know, this whitetail really. I love whitetails. Gotta love white. Listen, love <laughs> I cannot wait for September to get here. I just cannot. Okay. But with whitetails, another thing that um, really clicked for us, especially after this past season, is if you're in hill country or like in that area that Andrew's talking about, it's more mountainous part of Alabama, like really high elevation. You're, we're going in, like I killed my deer just over two and a half, almost two and a half miles in on public. And, um, is trust the terrain that is one of those areas that you can hunt saddles you can hunt benches and stuff like that and trust it during the rut especially if you're t- time it like when andrew's talking about like the early rut when this is a couple does coming in the heat and all those bucks are just moving they're covering ground and i actually killed w- one of my bucks which is you know my tax service i had another guy look at it, says probably eight and a half year old deer if not maybe even older it's one of the oldest bucks he's ever seen was coming through one of those saddles with a hot doe midday in a spot it's kind of funny enough andrew had been there the day before he's like oh it looks okay but <laughs> i'm like dude i'm hiking all the way in there to go hunt it it was a big saddle on a big secondary ridge point that was about a mile long coming off a huge mountain system and it was the one saddle up against the base of that that main ridge the main the main mountain so if anything was coming along that main mountain and want to get on our secondary ridge point they had to come through that saddle and it was money and it's like one of those things that was like you know, trusting the terrain. If you if you live in an area with a lot of topography and, and focus on those terrain features, come that early rut phase, especially doing what Andrew's talking about, like watching those community scrapes. And we're talking about with sale cameras, we're not talking about with manual cameras, but sale cameras. Um, you can time it just perfectly and really go in there and just, I mean, wear out the deer. Where are you finding these community scrapes generally? Uh, for me, it's usually in some kind of terrain feature that connects uh to like pretty distinct areas so in the case of uh of this particular area it's like a mountain above some private land and down on the down in the valley on the private land there's some like cattle pastures and like horse farms and stuff like that and then up on the side of the mountain it's it's very very steep and there's a lot of thick stuff there's a lot of dead trees up there and the, the main community scrapes where that mountain comes down and the bottom third of that mountain, there's like a little bench. There's little secondaries that come off and just they come off and they drop right down into that bottom. And right there on that little bench kind of area, there was two different community scrapes that I found. And both of them were getting lit up uh, by, I don't know, I don't even know how many bucks, two really big bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple, a bunch of like good bucks. And we ended up killing two of the good bucks. Um, but yeah, it was just in that transition area where these bucks were running that bench back and forth, catching all that traffic where the deer were coming up out of the valley, going up on the mountainside to bed. 
And so it's just like that transient area. That's where those are going to be. So it's going to be an area that gets a lot of deer traffic. Um, generally oh. speaking, like you're going to want areas with a lot of deer. Okay. So I apologize, but I have to nerd out a little bit here. I want <laughs> you to describe for me what does in your area, what does a community scrape look like? What characteristics are you looking for in a community scrape? This is something that I've literally been studying ac across the country, if you will. So I'm kind of excited to hear this. So down here in the south, we have logging roads all over the place. And logging roads, you can go walk down any logging road, like in the pines, and find a bunch of scrapes that are about as big around as a basketball. That's yep. not, you know, and a lot of guys will be like, well, I'm hunting a scrape line. And that's what they're talking about because there'll be like 10 of them going down that road. Like, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for the scrape that's got like at least three different licking branches, like, like individual, like big branches coming off. And what I'm looking for at least are ones that are twisted up and broken from years past. So like it has history where, this is a destination that deer have been coming to for multiple years in a row. Um, and then if, and then other attributes, like if it happens to be like really pawed out to where the earth is indented, like that's great too, but that's not necessarily like a need or anything, but, but it's mainly just the licking branches. Like it has to have big giant torn up licking branches that have been clearly used for years. And it has to be in an area that a lot of deer are around, you know? So like, you have to start thinking about pockets of deer in your area. Like, sure, like there's deer everywhere, like whatever, but there's pockets of deer and you got to figure out where those pockets of deer are. And that community scrape will be in between two pockets of deer, if that makes sense. Okay. And where they're going in different directions. So it's like where we're finding those community scrapes, especially like down here and even like other states I've been to, it's in between a lot of times, like where those does are coming from bed to that food and those bucks are cutting in between it. And also, it's one of those things you can find community scrape in the summertime. It does yep. not have to be in the fall. And they use it in the summertime. It doesn't have to be in the springtime or like late winter. If it's a community scrape, you can tell without a shadow of a doubt it's a community scrape, even in the summertime when everything's growing. They may not be pawing the ground, but you can look at those licking branches. And again, I interested at least three, you know, we'll find something that has seven, eight, ten big licking branches dropping to one spot. And that within the, the fall for multiple trees. Yeah, come pre-rut, that scrape might be five, six, seven, eight feet wide. Like the scrape on the ground. Like it, yeah. it could be that big. Uh, it's not always typical, but really it's those licking branches is like the key. And like we we interviewed a, a gentleman from Michigan, actually, uh, Greg Scuffka from Pressure Deer Pros. And licking branch had, magic. Licking yep. branch magic. And he wrote it's one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> and, and he, you know, he like enlightened us a ton on what makes community scrape, but also how you can make your own, like what he talks about in this book and what he talked about in that podcast episode we did with him on, um, and how you can manipulate an area that has all the right attributes, but maybe there's not a community scrape there and you can implement that community scrape and have a ton of success. And he kills a lot of very big, mature Michigan bucks, 130, 140, 150 inches or bigger in those community scrapes pre-rut or very early stage of the rut on those community scrapes that he puts in. Is this a public land guy or private land guy? Pri private land guy. Okay. That's so Chris, after listening to that episode, that's when I put up that mock scrape at my father's that gets hit every year. <laughs> that wow. was after listening to that, I was like, Oh, this would be a good spot. 
based off of what he said and then what they prefer to um, make scrapes under as far as licking branches. I, what I did was I took a pinnock branch and, and my, my father's property, this private piece, there's always scrapes and licking branches under pinnocks. There's a bunch of pinnocks. So I basically transported a big pinnock pin branch and put it on a um, a cedar that had a signpost rub on it, but it was at this like intersection of, of two trails and then basically off it was right off this transition of thick like bedding cover and it's just, just like this little open pocket and for the past couple of years i mean i've gotten fairly consistent data off of it it was it was very neat to see that's awesome dude what what uh what trees are they using to scrape under where you're at uh this particular instance um like where we killed our bucks this past season that i was talking about one of them was a pine tree and so this is interesting that it was a community scrape underneath a pine with one licking branch there's one licking branch coming down and the, but the scrape was like the size of the bed of your truck like underneath that one licking branch i was like i'd never seen that before but that was one the other one was on a sparkleberry bush that just came up and like made a big arch and it had like like branches like fingers like this like how i'm doing right now and every i mean the whole side of the thing it was like nine feet was scraped out and that wow. one that especially was on fire yep do you guys have would you consider yourself a high or a low deer density uh well it depends on where we're hunting because we hunt some areas with like a very high deer density the area that we were hunting that time, like I, I wouldn't consider it a high deer density. I mean, I, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, you're talking, you're talking about guys that are in the state. I think it's like third largest deer herd in the country. Yeah. So oh. take that into consideration. But anyways, but keep, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And also beech trees too. By the way, beech trees are a, are a big, big, yeah. big, big, big one. Like yeah. if if I'm walking through a specific spot that that has like a <laughs> tree was like a that beautiful limb coming down at the perfect height and there's not a scrape under it i'm like let's get out of here yeah <laughs> you see the tree from like 140 yards away you can kind of see the branches hanging down and you're with like a beginner or somebody who's kind of a novice and you're like hey let's go check out this scrape under that beech tree and they're like whoa how did you and like dude it's in the right spot it's got the right branches so where I've been kind of struggling and, and, and maybe I'm wrong. So I go to Missouri to the Ozarks and I check out these hubs and I found all kinds of scrapes and I found broken twisted licking branches, but I just didn't find big licking branches. And I have kind of a theory, if you will. And again, I could be, not even close to right here. So they have a lot of cedars and I'm not used to, I have literally never seen an evergreen scrape in my life until I went there. They don't do that here. We don't, we don't have cedar scrapes that I've ever seen. So, and then we really don't have many pines as you know. So I go out there finding all these licking branches on these pines and they're like cleaned up, but None of them are broken, hanging down, twisted. And I feel like that's a pretty stringy, tough tree to really break, you know, the branches. They don't have a damn beech tree anywhere. 
So that rip that uh, like beech trees are like your guaranteed money tree. And uh, so I, I honestly don't know what tree it was that I was finding. It, it looked very similar uh, to a Buckeye tree. You'd find them really close to the creeks, but every tree was pulled over. And they have super, super, super rocky soil there. And so I came to the conclusion that it was kind of the same thing, if you will. You know, I'm seeing the, the aggressive activity. It's just setting up different. Does that make sense at all? Um, and then in Indiana, I never found any big, big broken branches or anything, but I found smaller ones twisted, but I never found any beech trees in the right spot that were big enough and had the right height, you know, branches. A lot of them were too high up, which was very weird here in Ohio and even in Kentucky, you know, they're a couple feet off the ground and you start seeing good branches hanging off. And then as you climb the tree, it's, you know, same thing all over, all around it. In Indiana, they'd be, you know, 10 feet before there was even a branch if it was a, you know, a bigger tree. So I don't know. It's very weird. It's been very interesting. We've done, so I've scouted Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. I'm going to do West Virginia as well uh, and Illinois. I tried to do Illinois on my way back, but that failed. So um, I don't know. It's been been quite interesting. So it's it's neat to hear some fellow licking branch people, which the, the prior weekend uh, to the Missouri trip, we spent a weekend in the woods with Jake Bush learning all about these licking branches and these, these hub scrapes. And then I, I actually posted, uh, I don't know if you guys are in the group or not. It's like called the podcast exchange group or whatever. I think OKS Hunter does it, Eric Clark. And uh, of course, Josh goes in there posting all these different episodes. And I think a couple of them were from you guys. One was the licking branch magic, which somehow I still haven't heard. And then the other one was Troy Pottinger. And so, I learned all this stuff from Jake Bush and the very following week I'm listening to Troy Pottinger and my mind is like sitting next to me in the passenger seat, basically melting it was crazy. I'm like, Oh my God, I literally, I messaged, I never talked to Troy in my life. I was like, dude, I got to tell you this. <laughs> I just learned all this stuff and then listen to you on the Southern outdoorsman and I'm freaking out right now. This is amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, Troy's a real deal, man. He's a mm -hmm. freaking great one to learn from. Yeah. Oh yeah. We yeah. found we found a scrape with Jake that I think Troy has wet dreams about. It was it's the best <laughs> scrape I've ever seen in my life. Truck size scrape with multiple big licking branches that are just twisting and hanging down. Big old beech tree, and and yep. I want to I want to be. I want to like Ron Swanson this. I want to be very clear, not a truck hood or a truck bed, a full size pickup truck. <laughs> you parked your pickup truck. I mean, it was, it was so crazy. The, the, um, there were like places where saplings tried to grow that were like, I don't know, three quarters of an inch to an inch in diameter. They're just broken off, you know, close to the ground and you could tell they've been chewed to hell and back. And, and it, it's one of those, those hub systems where there's just, what do you think, Josh, eight or 10 different secondary ridges that are all, a bunch. 
facing the same spot, pointed in the same direction, and you can tell, like, oh, wind base bedding all around. They're dumping. This is where they come, you know, before they head to food. It is crazy. So, anyway, we'll we'll quit with the uh, – we really screwed the pooch on the turkey talk there, but <laughs> – that's like our thing. We talk turkeys and then we can't help talking about deer. This is the this is the probably the first year that whitetail have ever been the equivalent to turkeys for me. Um the last year of learning and everything has really really brought the whitetails up a notch for me. So pretty cool. Right. Well, gentlemen, we appreciate you guys coming on and giving us your time. Um you want to tell us where people might be able to see or hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they can find us on any podcast platform. We're on all of them, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, doesn't matter. We're on all those. Uh, of course, Facebook and Instagram, Southern Outdoorsmen, uh, but also YouTube. We're putting a big emphasis on our YouTube channel over the next couple months. Uh, Actually, the hunts that I mentioned, we filmed this past season, and you're going to be able to see those hunts on our YouTube channel coming up this fall um, or just over the summer, just kind of whenever we decide to drop them. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out exactly what we want to do with them, but we got all that on footage. So that's going to be on our YouTube along with all the other stuff we're doing this fall. So we got a, a, a quite a lineup this fall that we're going to be doing uh, and filming all those hunts and, and posting them and, and trying to go actually film with some podcast guests. Uh, so take kind of like the the idea of the podcast where we're interviewing these guys and actually make a video out of it where we go and basically do it in the field and go and point out exactly what they're talking about and then hunt it. So that's that's kind of the goal for this fall. But then also on there, you're going to find gear reviews, map scouting videos, the whole nine yards. So a little something for everybody on there. I like uh, but it. yeah, other outdoors yeah. on every. Okay. Yeah. And they also have a a couple of Facebook groups, right? You got run and gun whitetail hunters and then public land turkey hunters. And then correct me if I'm wrong. Do you guys do a fishing podcast as well? Yeah, we got a fishing podcast called the, the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. And there's a, a Facebook group for that. So there's a Facebook group for everybody. So, <laughs> fish, it don't matter. We got something for you. I like it. All right. Well, Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. This has been Fueled by the Outdoors, and tonight we've been joined by the Southern Outdoorsmen. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a good night. See you. See you.